Morning, everybody. I'm sure most of you are aware by now that we're in a mini-series of sermons about Nehemiah and rebuilding Jerusalem. And this is actually the last sermon in the series because today the wall is finished. Now, something we need to remember here is that this is not just a wall. Jerusalem is perceived by the Jews and also by all the surrounding people as the center of the Jewish nation, the place where God Almighty, the God of the Jews, is worshipped, the place where he lives, even. With Jerusalem in ruins, people assumed, incorrectly, that God had lost his power and authority and that he no longer cared for his people. They assumed that God wasn't powerful enough to protect his own city. It gave people an excuse to mock God. That's why it was such an awful thing for the walls of Jerusalem to be broken down. Rebuilding the wall caused opposition because the surrounding people didn't want the Jewish nation to be strong again. And they didn't want God, the God of the Jews, to be looking after them again. So let's look at the opposition that Nehemiah encountered and see how he handled it. In chapter 4, first of all, Sambalat and Tobiah turned on the ridicule. As we heard in the reading, the constant carping of, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from these burnt-out heaps of rubble? This was meant to discourage and demoralize the builders and also to reassure their supporters. Remember, they said all this in front of the army of Samaria. Tobiah's final insult that we actually missed out by mistake in verse 3, that anything the Jews built could be knocked over by a fox, was a bit rude, I think. So, what did Nehemiah do? He prayed and he kept going. The second problem he encountered was plans and rumors of attacks. So what did Nehemiah and the people do? They prayed. And they also took precautions by posting a guard. And they kept going. The third form of opposition to Nehemiah's building was discouragement of the builders. Now, because the walls were broken down, a lot of the houses which had been built into the walls would have gone too. So there weren't enough safe places to live in the city. People just didn't feel secure living there. So most of the exiles who'd returned from Jerusalem, to Jerusalem, sorry, from Babylon, in the time of Zerubbabel, which was about 80 years previously, and in the time of Ezra, about 13 years ago, they were living in the villages outside the city. So they would have been the people that were hearing of these rumors and plots to attack and letting Nehemiah know. But some of them were also getting anxious about the members of their family who were in Jerusalem helping to build the wall, and they wanted them to come home. The rumors of the attacks and the enormity of the task was beginning to get them down. So, Nehemiah gave the people a pep talk. <clears throat> Remember whose side you're on. 
Remember how great and awesome God is. Excuse me. (coughs) This is his battle. You are fighting for God and for your families and your community. God has got this. We can do it in his strength. He also kept praying. And he took action by arming people with swords and spears and bows. From that time onwards, everybody had a sword with them. And half of his men worked on the building while half were on guard. They were quite spread out along the wall. So they arranged that if the trumpet sounded, it meant there was an attack and everybody must rally to that point. But until then, they were to keep building. So that was a bit of a setback. And no doubt, it put the budget out a bit. But they kept going, and they kept trusting God. So, Sambalat and Tobiah decided to try a different tactic. They directly targeted Nehemiah, hoping that the people would give up if he wasn't there to encourage them. So they tried to entice Nehemiah out of the city to meet them in the plain of Ono, so that they could arrange for an accident to befall him. But Nehemiah was not going to be distracted. He saw through their plot, and he told them that he was too busy to come. They tried this four times, though. They were really persistent. But fortunately, with the help of God, so was he. The fifth time, they sent this open letter containing slanderous accusations suggesting that Nehemiah was planning to make himself king and rebel against Babylon. Now, not so many years back, in the book of Ezra, when they were trying to rebuild Jerusalem, a letter similar to this one of Sambalat's had gone to King Artaxerxes, and he had stopped the work. So this letter would have caused quite a lot of anxiety in the Israelite community, quite apart from the fact that it was totally untrue. Maybe Nehemiah sent his own message to the king. We don't know. But Nehemiah told them they'd made it all up, and he prayed some more, and he carried on. So now we are at opposition type six, where the prophet Shemaiah is hired to deliver a false prophecy and to discredit Nehemiah. You see, Nehemiah was not a priest, and therefore he shouldn't be in the house of God in the inside bit where you can go in and shut the door. That's also called the holy place, where only the priests go. If he had gone in, it would have been a sin. And it would have driven a wedge between him and the priests. And it would have therefore removed a lot of his credibility. Fortunately, Nehemiah realized that the prophecy was not from God. The reason that he realized this was that the prophecy told him something that the prophecy told him to do something that the word of God told him not to do. And God does not contradict himself. Nehemiah knew this. And when we hear prophecy, we're told in 1 Corinthians 14, we should weigh carefully what is said and consider carefully whether it's come from God or not. So Nehemiah said that he was not the sort of person that hides away, and he declined the invitation. But it still must have been disconcerting that someone who, as a prophet, had spoken the words of God in the past, 
and perhaps with somebody that Nehemiah had trusted, had allowed himself to be used in this way to attempt to trap him and to cause his downfall. How does he respond? Well, as usual, he turns to God in prayer and carries on with the building work. Amazingly, incredibly, the work on the wall is finished in 52 days. And in chapter 6, verse 19, we're told that the surrounding nations realized that all this had been done with the help of God. And as a result, they lost their confidence. Good. The rest of the book of Nehemiah is all about re-establishing a community in Jerusalem and restoring the Jewish nation and their understanding of God's law and the type of worship he expects from them. So what can we learn from this story of the rebuilding in face of opposition? One of the learning points is the way that Nehemiah dealt with the opposition. It's not particularly surprising that he encountered opposition because whatever we do in life, if we want to change anything or do things differently, we will experience opposition. People will have lots of ideas and opinions and reasons why things definitely shouldn't change and what you want to do is a bad idea. This is life. If you choose to step out in faith and do something that you feel God is asking you to do, you will also experience the added challenge of spiritual opposition as well. We know about this. We've been warned to be careful about it. We may experience some difficulties if we're asked to take some leadership role in the church family, whether it's leading worship, leading a home group, leading youth work, or doing anything at the front of church, in fact, anything at all that we do in service for God. It's amazing how often, when you're tasked with leading something at the front, you get hit with a humongous sore throat, or you lose your voice, or your preparation time is totally disrupted, or something awful happens at home just as you're about to walk out of the door. But some people have much worse opposition, opposition problems than these, some Christians are severely persecuted for standing up for Jesus, and some are killed. Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, that our struggle is against the powers and authorities of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we need to be aware that there is a spiritual battle going on. But we also need to know that Jesus has won the war and God has got this covered James says in James 1 verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So what can we learn from Nehemiah's handling of the whole opposition situation? Firstly, when he faced ridicule, he prayed and he kept going. Secondly, when he faced intimidation, he prayed, he made contingency plans by posting a guard, and he kept going. When he faced discouragement of the building team, he kept praying. He reminded people how awesome God is and that they, who they were fighting for or building for. He took precautions of arming the people and he kept going. When he faced the challenge to compromise by going down to the plain of Ono to discuss the matter, he prayed and he kept going. When he faced slander, 
He prayed and he kept going. When he faced treachery in the form of false prophecy, he prayed and he kept going. Can we see a pattern here? He prayed constantly and specifically. He kept in touch with God, listening for guidance and asking for help. He relied on God's strength and power to get the job done. He also kept active. When we pray and ask for something, we need to be prepared to be part of the answer to our own prayers. If we ask God to speak to someone, he might well send us to be his mouthpiece. If we ask him to comfort someone, he might send us to put our arm around them. If we ask him to provide money, he might well point out that it's already in our pocket or bank account. Nehemiah kept building. He also reacted to the danger that was posed by taking precautions, by being ready for whatever challenge came against him. Sometimes the opposition came from the places he expected it, but sometimes it came from people he didn't expect it from, and that must have hurt more. But the response was the same each time. He kept praying and he kept going. The most important weapon we have as Christians is prayer. We can pray for ourselves, but we can also pray for our leaders. If we notice how when we stick our heads very slightly above the parapet, we experience spiritual opposition, how do you think our leaders feel? They're right up there in the firing line. It is very, very important that all of us Remember to pray for Mark and Meg and for all of our leaders regularly. The other weapons we have are the armaments of Ephesians 6. Paul says in verse 11, Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the, de the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and keep on praying for all the saints and pray also for me. Are we using our spiritual armor? Now, all the people who've spoken in this series about Nehemiah have linked it to the rock project. So I probably ought to say something about it as well. Rock, in case anybody doesn't know, stands for reimagining our church buildings for the kingdom. The first thing I would like to say about it is that it's not just a wall. It's not just a building. The whole point about rock is that it's about community. It all started from the observation that the church building sits like a fortress on the hill, 
locked, barred and bolted for all but a few hours a week and looking actually rather forbidding and unwelcoming. We expect the people who can't walk very well to use what feels like the tradesman's entrance round the back by the bins, where actually it's very difficult to get a walking frame round all the corners and it's almost impossible to get a full-sized wheelchair in. For years, we've been expecting our little children to use a creche room in a really unpleasant, small, cold, damp space, which really is not suitable for them. And at big services and weddings, when we have lots of visitors, the queue for the loos is often very long. It has been known to be all the way around the North Transit. That's that bit there. Mid-off, as Tim Watson used to call it. The point of Rock has been to try and create a warm and welcoming space that everybody can come into together. To have the building open and available for people much more often. To make as much as possible of the building accessible to everybody, regardless of mobility problems. And to make it a flexible space that can be used for all types of worship services and events, and maybe other things too. Welcoming visitors, enjoying being a community together, and going forward for the next 50 to 100 years. Hopefully, we can make it much more environmentally friendly as well, with more efficient heating and lighting systems. The Rock team, as you know, have been meeting and praying and working on this for about eight years now. We knew we wouldn't get everybody to agree with all our ideas, and that there would be challenges in getting the various permissions and in meeting the concerns of all the people who are interested in things like historic buildings and transport issues and wildlife and trees. We've listened, we've made alterations, and we've kept on going and kept on praying. Gradually, more and more people have come on board with the ideas. But there still are some big hurdles to get over, including the decision about the planning application. So we can't stop praying for a moment. Please will you pray too. Pray that we will hear God's guiding and leading and that we'll rely on his strength to keep going. In particular, I would like to ask you to pray for Tom. Tom has worked his socks off for this project and there's still a long way to go. Pray for God's protection for him and that God will give him the power to keep on being cheerful and diplomatic and leading the team in the amazing way that he has until now. So that's where we are with the Rock Project, not quite finished in 52 days like Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's wall, but still persisting in prayer and actions. And what about the rest of us? Whatever God has given us to do, we need to keep alert to his leading and guiding. We need to keep in contact with him, persist in prayer, and keep going in his strength. Shall we pray as we sit? Father God, thank you that you are almighty and amazing and all-powerful.
Help us to realize that we can trust you. And Father, help us to be alert and diligent in our prayers. Father, we pray for your blessing on the rock team and in particular on Tom. We pray that you will give him good health and strength and that you'll keep him cheerful. And we pray for Mark and Meg. Father, we pray for a special anointing and re-inspiration for them this week as they attend the new Wine Leaders Conference. Father, please bless them and protect them and help us to be diligent in remembering to pray for them. Father, would you guide and lead each one of us now as we go into our week? And will you bless us and help us to remember that we are in the army of the Lord? Amen.